Four days before we found ourselves tied up in a shack in the Florida Everglades with an alligator, Carla and I were coming off a week of not speaking. By not speaking, I mean she'd quit her job as my assistant after a lawyer from the company her fugitive husband co-owned hired me to locate him and the $7 million he embezzled from their accounts. Carla and I were still communicating by email if only to piece together what little information we had from the Orlando Police Department. After being the target of two attacks, our only option was to put the pieces of the puzzle together before whoever was looking for Carla found her. Lorenzo Rios was on the run for murdering the ex-husband and son of one Lucy Rios, who had changed her name, acquired a new identity, and fled Florida for Michigan in the hopes of starting a new life. The emotional turmoil she tried to leave in her wake caught up with Carla around the time I started sniffing around into the background of my new employee who, for all intents and purposes, had popped into my life without enough of a paper trail for someone in her mid-40s. During the time I was secretly doing my background search, Carla was attacked outside the meanwhile, after which the secrets of her past began to unravel. To be fair, I tugged the first snag I came across, and it all began to unspool from there. All we'd been able to put together based on the police report and what we already knew was that in addition to the apparent murder of Carla's one-time business partner in a daycare, the backyard of the Rios house had been dug up in various areas sometime after the sale of the property, before the new owners had taken residence. Both happened after Carla had fled. Also, before she left Florida, Carla became aware of an affair between her business partner, Bethany Keene, and her husband. So naturally, the police were looking into what Mrs. Keene may or may not have known about the disappearance of Lorenzo Rios. This proved difficult, since the woman had been found in her car with her throat slit in the parking lot of the daycare center. Carla and I learned of the embezzlement when Mercedes... Mercy, to everyone but phone solicitors and my priest, Sandoval, sauntered into the office to hire me. It appeared she thought Carla, having a vested interest, would comply. Carla threatened to quit if I took the case, so I took it. She immediately quit. For a while. Because the investigation had slowed to a stall, I contacted an old friend in the FBI who agreed to do some digging for me on the side once I sent him a dossier, including everything we knew up to that point. I had Carla on speakerphone and was working from home, exactly the amount of miles away from my former assistant that was required to keep my frustration at a manageable level. 
The woman had a way of niggling at me that I'd grown less than comfortable with, due to a couple of ill-advised sexual encounters, both of which could be attributed to a flagrant lack of common sense on my part. I'd reconciled myself to keeping things on a more professional level where Carla Danning was concerned. This reconciliation was much easier to adhere to when I wasn't in her physical presence. I uploaded the images you asked for. Most of them were from my old Facebook page, but I did find two other pictures in a box that I had in storage. I slid a finger behind my morning paper and loaded it down so I could look at the speaker on the phone her voice was coming from. You've got stuff in storage? This was new information to me, and I wasn't particularly happy about it. Just a few things that I didn't want to get rid of. Pictures, mostly. Old yearbooks. Stupid shit. And you didn't think it might be wise to let me know about that? No, Morno, I didn't. There's nothing in there that'll tell you anything. Unless you're interested in seeing me in my high school cheerleading uniform. Maybe peruse my old report cards. Offer some feedback. I went back to reading my paper. Two stabbings, a building fire, and the ousting of a local school superintendent general, and the ongoing saga of the secret Santa and how he'd struck again. It was early November, and for the last month or so, some philanthropic citizen had been leaving wads of cash around town, in Salvation Army kettles, church offering envelopes, at soup kitchens, a local animal shelter, and once, at a local school that was so run down, There'd been talk of it closing. All anonymous. All in plain envelopes. And oddly, all in the amount of $118,056. Until the last drop, which was an even 500000 left at a local halfway house. Secret Santa struck again. Morneau, are you listening to me? I just sent you the file. Just check it before I send it to your FBI guy. I set the paper down, pulled up her email, and clicked on the attachment. As soon as I saw the file size, I groaned. Criminy, woman! What are you doing to me? What? What's the problem now? I canceled the download and deleted the email. I don't look at images over 5 megabytes, because it tells me that the sender does not yet understand the basic procedures. First, you create and save a high-resolution 300 dpi image, for eventual printing. Next, you save a second image file using the Save for Web command under the tab in Photoshop. From there, you have two final files of each image. One, a high-resolution image, which uses interpolation to command a laser printer to output a file, and two, a screen image, which is 72 dpi. The high-resolution image will be huge, 22 megabytes, for instance, like the flaming pile of shit you just sent me. This is only for printing, Carla. From computer to printer. Get it? Like for the hard copy FBI file you're overnighting them on disk. But for use in all aspects of display on the web, you need something closer to 150K. This means people who have old PCs, like me, or in terms of your liberal bleeding heart Occupy Wall Street mentality might comprehend, the 99 percenters can also load and view the image. I heard some slamming and general belligerent sounds coming from her end of the line, but I continued because, 
chapping her ass had recently become one of the highlights of my day. I can also explain the meaning of interpolation. In the context of mathematically analyzing adjacent pixels and adding pixels that don't exist to increase resolution for printing. But I won't. Nor will I explain the entire etymology of digital conversion of images to display at the maximum screen resolution of 72 dpi and how that barrier was crossed using another version of digital image pixel interpolation. When Carla groaned dramatically, I chuckled. How does it feel to be upbraided and condescended to in the morning? Don't answer that, it's rhetorical. Do me a favor. Put your first finger and your thumb up your ass and rummage around a little bit and yank out whatever crawled up there and died. When was the last time you had a drink? Maybe you should consider adding a shot or two to your coffee so you can get through this without me coming over there and offering up my lily-white ass for you to spank. I don't think I won't do it because I will. You've gotten a little too fucking comfy with my absence. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about it and I'm going to come back to work tomorrow. That's not necessary. Listen, I can't help it if you've got a computer that's as old and crotchety as you are. Should I also be increasing the font size on these emails so as not to overburden your roomy old eyes? I ignored the slight and took her advice, fetching a bottle from a cabinet in the kitchen. It's not that I can't open the files, Carla. It's that I can click, download, make a cup of coffee, go outside and smoke a cigar, take a piss, and contemplate the effects of pie on a rotating print cylinder to determine the amount of image shrinkage on a printed impression based on the diameter of the cylinder before the image actually loads on the screen. I took my alcohol-enhanced coffee back to the living room and sat down at my desk. I could hear her clickety-clacking on the keyboard and knew she was already busy fixing her digital blunder. I had to give her credit. She was a quick study. I was just about to readdress her returning to work when I heard a loud thump outside my apartment door. Let me call you back. I picked up the receiver and placed it back down to hang up the phone, then grabbed a tire iron I keep next to the door. My dilapidated apartment building is located in Detroit proper, and while the price was right, the area is dreary. Think the drab browns and grays of despair mixed with soaring unemployment and crime rates and you get the general idea. As I unbolted the locks, I could hear a faint mewing coming from the hallway. When I opened the door, I saw my across-the-hall neighbor lying on the floor. She appeared to be pretty beaten up. Her neck and arms dappled with finger-sized bruises. Her hair a matted mess with a clot of dried blood just over her ear. Her eyes fluttered open. I reached over and tried her door, but it was locked. Trudy, where are your keys? I got nothing more than a grunt as she tried to lift one arm to little avail. It flopped down on the floor and she rolled to her side curling into a ball. A little backstory on Trudy. She's a hooker with a meth addiction, though the fresh track marks on her arms suggest she'd recently upped the chemical ante. I'm not sure how old she is, but I'd guess somewhere in her mid-30s. Though due to her poor physical condition, that number could be plus or minus 10 years. 
She's a nice enough girl, but I suspect, at the rate she's going, she's not long for this world. I opened her purse and rummaged around looking for the keys and found them after noticing a couple of syringes and a baggie full of a dull-looking powder I assumed was heroin. I unlocked her apartment and opened the door, scooped her up and carried her inside, laying her on a threadbare couch. Her apartment was exactly like mine in layout. Kitchen off the living room, and a hallway that led to a bathroom to the left and a bedroom on the right. Unfortunately, hers made mine look extravagant by compare. She had a small television that sat on an old crate, the couch, an old rocking chair, and an upturned cardboard box posing as a coffee table. By the amount of cigarette butts in the ashtray teetering on top, I wondered how she hadn't burned the building down by now. I put a finger on her wrist to make sure she had a pulse, then wandered into the kitchen where I found a sink full of dirty dishes, a counter littered with an empty cereal box and Raymond noodle containers, an overflowing garbage can, and a trash bag full of empty beer and soda cans. I pulled my cell phone out of my pocket and dialed. Carla answered on the second ring. Yeah. Can you come over? I'm at Trudy's. Why, what's wrong? Is she okay? I looked over at the woman on the couch. I don't think so. 